For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the show. I'm Christina Dent, your host. I'm also the founder of End It For Good, the nonprofit that puts this podcast out, among lots of other things that we do. A reminder that our guests may not always agree with everything that End It For Good stands for, and we may not agree with everything that they stand for. Uh, That's okay. We want to have great conversations. One thing that we try to do on the show is to look at this big topic of drugs from a lot of different angles and with varying degrees of zoom. So by that I mean sometimes we're looking at the overarching themes uh, like shifting wholly drug policy from a criminal approach to a healthcare approach. And sometimes we're zooming in on some specific aspect of the drug war. And that's what today's episode is. So we're zooming in today on confidential informants. And stay with me, even if you're drawing a blank on what that is when you hear that term. I've had several experiences recently related to confidential informants um, that I'll share later on in the show today that have really helped me to see how pertinent of an issue this is. So even if you don't think that it affects you, chances are um, it just might. So I asked uh, Dr. James Nolan, who is a former lieutenant, spent many years in policing, um, to join us today and help us understand what a confidential informant is and why it matters to us. Um, So he was uh, an officer for many years in roles related to drugs, including investigating conspiracy cases, uh, performing no-knock raids on homes of people suspected of drug involvement, as well as going undercover with the vice squad unit to investigate drug dealers. He went on after that to get a number of degrees, including a Ph.D., and now he is a professor of sociology at West Virginia University. He's also part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP for short. Um, They are a national organization of law enforcement and criminal justice professionals uh, that advocate for all kinds of criminal justice reforms, including a legalized, regulated uh, drug market. Dr. Nolan, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. So your bio spans this wide range of professions, um, including what you're doing now as a university professor. But when did you know that you wanted to be a police officer? Well, I I grew up in a in an area that was uh, very Catholic, and uh, the, the the local parishes, the Catholic schools, and, and stuff that were run um, mostly by nuns and priests, and uh, in that sort of an environment, the thinking was, you know, good. A good career would be a police officer, and lots of my friends wanted to become police officers, and I I come from a police family. Uh, Even now, I still have uh, five nephews that are actively uh, police officers in that area. Wow. Uh, What started you down the road to um, kind of shifting the way that you think about policing? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I spent uh, seven years of my 13 years as a police officer in a in a drug unit, and uh, we were we uh, were involved in all kinds of uh, activities like drug raids and sweeps and, and that sort of thing, and arresting basically, you know, maybe a thousand people a year in, in particular areas, and. Uh, we really, you know, basically, I realized at one point that, you know, the more we do this, you know, what happens is it slows down for about a week, and then there's uh, a period of violence, and then then it settles down again, and things are as if it never the the arrest never happened. 
And uh, at the same time, I was uh, going to graduate school at Temple University, and I was studying social psychology. And it was the first time, basically, I I was introduced to the idea that uh, that the context, how the context matters. I mean, I was I was learning that um, what what happens is, you know, we were going into rooms, uh, classrooms, and uh, the professors were not saying anything, and it created all kinds of dynamics. And and so, uh, you know, I do that with some of my classes also. So I demonstrate how when people expect something to be true, like the, the, the police to be reliable, dependable, and that sort of thing, and they're not, how that can create uh, problems. And so... So that experience, so both my experience as a police officer saying how ineffective uh, our drugs, drug raids and sweeps were, and also my uh, formal education was showing me there may be a better way. And what is the, when you talk about, you know, there's, it's interrupted for about a week, there's a period of violence. Is that violence due to kind of the uh, reshaking out who's in control of what area and who owns what street corners? And is that yeah, where that that's violence exactly is coming from? Yeah, exactly what happens. You know, the, the people, the main people are taken off the street and then somebody else has, emerges as a leader and then there's a, somebody contests, contests that and and then there's a little bit of violence and then uh, it goes back away things become normal again. So is that what's also happening we see kind of in South America? We take out El Chapo and the violence increases as now um, there's all kinds of other cartels and people that are right. trying to fight and, for all yeah, of that. I mean, that. That's just the nature of uh, the illegal drug markets. Hmm. So a lot of listeners are probably not familiar with confidential informant work. So give us a primer on that. What are confidential informants and how do they interface with the drug war? Well, in in my unit and it's still in policing today, I've been away for a while, but I've, I have, uh, I stay in touch and my, most of my research is in policing. So it, it's not, um, I'm current in terms of how informants are being used, but the, uh, so basically there's, uh, what happens is there's several different types of informants. There's uh, confidential informants who are, uh, know that they're informants, and, they, and sometimes they're past proven reliable confidential informants. And these are people that are either working off charges or working for money, but they know that the who the police are and they know uh, what they're doing. Then there's uh, un, unwitting informants. These are people that... Um, that undercover police officers meet with who get introduced into uh, criminal networks. And uh, they may not know that they're actually introducing a police officer, but uh, sometimes they get uh, tagged with the uh, the label of informant when, when that becomes known. And, uh, you know, basically the entire drug war and all of policing today, really, that's related to drug enforcement, uh, is is uh, essential that they use informants. Uh, there's there's really no other way. I mean, there's informants uh, used to make arrests, and then after arrests are made, then they convert some of the defendants into informants. And so, um, and we used to do uh, plenty of wiretap cases. And what we would do is uh, we'd use informants to to link us into these networks and. And then uh, after we intercepted uh, calls for some time, we used informants to help us decipher what they were saying. And then after arrests were made, we used we converted some some of the people who were um, uh, secondary targets in the investigations and uh, asked them to testify 
against um, some of the more prominent figures as to you know what it is it meant. Like for example, uh, if someone says you know I'd like to have like five flyers tickets, what what does that mean? And and so I mean they don't usually just say you give me you know I want five grams or five ounces mm -hmm. of, of a drug, but they use codes or I'm on my way to Harlem to to, to see my uncle which meant I'm going to get heroin. And if they said I want to see my aunt, it means I'm going to get uh, cocaine. Hmm. And that kind of thing, you need, you need informants to help you figure out. So kind of at every level of drug policing, there's often informants in that. Some of the people arrested from the previous raid are turned into informants to go further up the chain. Um, and to decipher, and uh, is that kind of true? Is that what you're saying? Kind of at, at all levels of the drug war policing, informants are a can be a key part of of that system. Right, and it's you know it's it's essential in the drug in the drug world in particular because uh, there's, a, there's it's very difficult otherwise to you know to infiltrate these these sort of networks. But what you know what happens is the the people who become informants they they go they have to go to the people that they know and the people they know are their their close friends and their family and and that sort of thing so you know friends in the community and 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 uh, so basically uh, they they have to give up uh, close close uh, connections. So t tell me if this is a, a way of kind of saying how this could work out. So let's say, um, you know, a 20-year-old guy is caught with drugs. The police could say to him, okay, we'll, we'll arrest you and charge you, or you could become an informant for us, and yeah, you can help us catch more people. And, and uh, a lot of times what, what happens, so here's a, here's a typical case. So a police officer in a, in a drug unit would, would – uh, meet with an informant and it could be an unwitting informant or, or a, uh, a, a witting informant and they and we'd search them and, and they'd go in and they'd make a buy and they'd come out and then we'd get a search warrant and we'd wait and when we if we did a raid then we would uh, arrest everyone inside and they'd all be charged with multiple felonies like you know conspiracy possession with intent to deliver trafficking uh, maintaining a dwelling for drugs, maintaining a vehicle for drugs, if there's a gun involved, and so you, you know you have may have five or six people walk away with you know six seven felony uh, charges, and then and with that heavy weight, I mean, take, risking going to trial with something like that is, you know, so everybody is trying to talk, and if you get them to plead to one felony. So there's like an unlimited uh, supply of people who are willing to become informants. Because of the massive weight, if they don't become an informant, of what can happen to them if they don't. That's or, right. or what's waiting there. Right. So you can either participate with this or we're going to charge you with these seven felonies. And chances are that's, you know, you'll be guilty and you'll have your seven felonies. But then, like you were talking about, you know, it works on relationships, it sounds like. So if you decide to become an informant, well, you're going to become an informant for the network that you already know, which is, and have connections to. That's the whole reason why you are wanted as an informant, so that you can help with, you know, the, the uh, infiltrating the system of drug use and selling that's uh, in your area. So then you end up turning over or setting up your friends or your acquaintances or, um, you know, the people that you buy from or people that you know sell. Um, so you end up kind of 
in order to save your own skin, uh, turning in other people, some of whom will then become informants, who will turn in other people who will then become informants. Is that kind of how the 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 circle goes? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's very rarely there's always a discussion. Well, who do you get it from? And and you try to go up the chain, but in most most places. Uh, it's really just you get a bunch of people and they go laterally and there's there's all kinds of different connections but it's it's not really up to get El Chapo it's it's usually I'm, I'm going to get you know maybe somebody in another gang or I'm going to get somebody uh, in my family I mean if I'm fa- if I'm facing almost a life sentence with all you know the combination of felonies you know I'm, I may give up a you know a, a brother or a, you know a father or a fa- another family member or something like that. Just out of desperation to not yeah, face that out sentence. Of desperation. Yeah, no, they, very rarely does anybody want to do it. I mean, it's traumatic to have to do it. Hmm. So I hadn't planned on doing an episode on confidential informants this early in the podcast, but I had two experiences in the last couple of months that made me want to do this one today. I'm curious what your response to these people is. So one was a person who came to one of our book discussions whose family member had been a confidential informant. And it was this multi-year nightmare for their family, which they're still dealing with, as the people who um, his family member turned in were prosecuted, had been in prison, are now being released from prison. Now this family's fear over the retaliation of, you know, being turned in by an informant. Um, They've already experienced retaliation, are fearful of more retaliation. They're always aware of this. The second was a man who made a donation to End It For Good just out of the blue. So he was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast interview with Johan Hari. Johan Hari wrote the book that we use for our book discussions here, and I had the uh, opportunity to meet him last year. And so Johan mentioned my name in his Joe Rogan podcast as an unlikely ally in ending the drug wars. I'm a politically conservative, evangelical Christian woman from Mississippi. Um, And he was just saying, you know, you just never know where your allies are because— we disagree on a lot of things, but on this, you know, we we agree and we're, we're allies in ending this uh, drug war. So this man heard that on um, the Rogan podcast. He showed up at uh, our office and said that he couldn't believe that someone in Mississippi was working uh, on this, on ending the drug war. And he wanted to personally deliver his donation and thank me for the work that End It For Good was doing. And he said he was doing this because he had seen a number of his college buddies become mm. confidential informants. And one of his best friends had been a confidential informant and was really damaged by yeah, the experience. And, and you know, it's, it's traumatic for the people who have to do it because they are basically giving up many times the people that they love and the people that they're most connected to. And that's that's the irony of uh, you know enforcing a drug the, the drug war and stuff. It's the, the things uh, that they do to enforce the, the uh, law. Uh, and particularly use of informants, it breaks apart the types of relationships that actually make places safe. Hmm. And uh, you know, in my in my research now, you know, what I I have measures of this: this community, you know, trust and and um, interrelationships and that sort of thing. And the places that are tightest in relationship, in terms of you know willingness to help each other and that sort of thing, these are the safest places and the most least at risk for for drugs. And the places where people are disconnected from each other, that where there, um, where they don't, there's no trust and and there's uh, somewhat isolation, these are almost certainly places where drug drug is drug use is going to happen and also uh, violence. 
Hmm. So it breaks down. Th- there's now kind of this uh, suspicion. There's kind of a climate of suspicion of who's an informant and who's not. And I can't trust people. And so I'm not going to kind of invest in my community because I'm always ma- trying to watch my back for who might be turning me in or might be wired or who. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's also, you know, the way it's sort of spilled out and uh, affected the criminal justice system it's uh it's it's hard to get convictions because uh people lost have lost trust in the police because of you know some of this this uh behavior this uh deceptive behavior um there's a you know a trend in many places stop snitching and stop snitching doesn't mean just for drugs but it means for everything so clearance rates on crimes are very low in the place where I worked there was a time when murders were being solved, there was a 14% clearance rate in murders, and even though people know that they don't want they don't want this type of violence to happen, they know that if they help the police, they're in trouble. And uh, mm-hmm. and so it, it's the disconnect between the people; they don't trust each other, they're not willing to support each other, and the disconnect between the people and the the police and the civil authorities that are there to uh, help uh, settle disputes. Uh, you know, there's in particularly in poor neighborhoods. There's just so many um, there's so many people that are wanted on on uh, court violations and, and those sorts of things. I mean, it, it might be some neighborhoods. I, I saw a statistic one time where there's like 80 percent of the households in particular neighborhoods have somebody in it who's, who's wanted. And in these types of places, even even if you have a, a burglary or if somebody's stealing something from you, you're not going to call the police. And you and then you know a code of the street develops, and violence happens. So the so the, basically the, the broken trust in the police is what contributes to you know much of the violence. And I don't think that you know the police always see that that what they're doing is is not disconnected from the levels of violence that are happening in communities. Hmm. So here in Mississippi, there is only one law that I've been able to find about confidential informant work, and that one is a new law. It just came into law maybe last year that requires law enforcement to at least notify a minor that they can call their parents if they want to before they choose to become an informant. Now, they do not have to call, and parents don't have to give consent or even be notified for their teenager to become a confidential informant, which to me is really scary as a parent thinking through the mind of, uh, a scared high school or college student, um, maybe their parent doesn't know that they're using drugs and they don't want they don't want their parent to know. And so they think, you know, I don't want them to be disappointed in me. I don't want the public disgrace that comes from this. So I'm going to agree to become a confidential informant and I'm going to turn over, you know, eight or ten people or however many it is. And then I'm going to be done. Um, it seems like there there must be thousands and thousands of people that have been confidential informants and never told anyone, just tried to, to move on with their lives, even with, like you said, the trauma of what, what it feels like to turn in other people, often your friends, uh, to save your own skin. Do you think that's correct, that, that that's what's happening? A lot of people never, never tell anyone about that experience? Yeah, I, I think so, and I and I think that the work of the police is to sort of in their their work to develop informants is uh, basically they have to win the trust of the person. So they basically they may tell, particularly a juvenile, you know, we you know we'll do everything we can to keep your identity 
uh, concealed, so you don't know. We may, if we indict you, we'll indict you with a sealed indictment, so nobody knows you're an informant, and we'll do what we can. But the reality of it is, you just can't. You can't. People can figure it out, and the police are not in a position to protect you. And when you're dealing with juveniles, there's juveniles are going to hand over way more trust than the police. The, the authorities are going to help me. But the reality of it is they're not, many times, they, they can't be trustworthy. They can't protect the people who become uh, informants. I mean, there's just so many. The entire police industry is is uh, dealing with informants, and they, so they, and they can't protect everyone. Hmm. So it seems like confidential informant work really is the equivalent of undercover police work. Is that a fair comparison? Well, it's a, it's part and parcel to that. I mean, there's a lot of police officers who who have done undercover work. Who, uh, in, pa- in fact, I don't know what uh, everyone why everyone comes into the Leap organization, but I was I came into the the organization because it was former drug officers who were trying to end prohibition that we had seen the failures in the system and wanted to organize and come together and and speak out. Um, about the ineffectiveness of it, and part of that comes from our experiences, and not just that it, not just that it doesn't work, but that it creates harm. And I think that's what motivates people to come forward. You know, there's lots of things that don't work, and it's not going to get us motivated to speak out against it. But when we see the amount of harm that's done, we see the the sweeps and the the people being taken out of their homes, and the disruption that causes in communities and kids and the broken trust and all the types of things that happen, uh, the informants and, the, you know, and how they're treated and, and the risks that they take for the rest of their lives. It's just, uh, you know, it, it, it makes us come forward. And I think part of that is the trauma that we, we experience because from what we saw. Hmm. And that kind of what you were just saying about, um, you know, the, the the fear, the danger that they're in. Confidential informants do die doing this work. Uh, I don't know how common it is. I know we've had it um, here. I've heard of it uh, other places. I mean, it it's it could be very dangerous work. You're wearing a wire, maybe going into a drug deal to do a buy. And if they, um, you know, the police are listening, but they're not. 10 feet away from you like you said they can't they can't promise that they can save you um, right and then what uh, what happens is and it you know happens a lot um where the uh an officer like i for one uh, one summer i was uh i was working uh, with another officer but also we had we had an unwitting informant he was the person who was taking us into his network and we were buying like cocaine and that sort of thing and um and the day he he uh, delivered some some amount of drugs to me, and I had a, I was wearing a wire, but the the police were not in a position. They they didn't hear it. It was staticky or something. So uh, he got out of the car before we were able to go in and make the arrest. And I said, and I had to identify myself as a police officer. And he just he didn't believe it. And then you know he ended up uh, we ended up wrestling in the street, and they and they backup saw us um, fighting. So. They swooped in, and this guy was crushed. I mean, he said, "You know, we, I, I would have fought like a brother for you." And he had been, you know, he had been honest, and he had been, you know, open. And you know, I met his his family, his kids, his, uh, and you know, the entire time I was, you know, basically telling him telling him a lie. Everything I told him was a lie, 
and I, and this is you know this is the same thing that um, you know confidential informants are facing. They they let people down, and there's some uh, trauma in that. Hmm. Are there positive policy changes that you see happening around confidential informants? Is it? It seems like this has been going on for a long time, but I don't know if I'm just hearing more about it because I'm in this world now or if they're being used more frequently or in different ways than they used to be used or are you do you do you keep track of any kind of policy changes related to that that are happening no i mean i i don't i don't know anything i don't know too much about changing policy i think that um the system particularly past the police uh the court systems and the prosecutors and stuff like that they tend to do a pretty good job of trying to get seal the identity of informants and they, there's uh, methods of bringing uh, confidential informants through back doors and into judges chambers and that sort of thing to do what they can but it, uh, at the, on the policing side of it I don't know that there's too much that they really can do um, different agencies with more resources like the FBI and DEA they, they log in informants and they do uh, they have uh, better protections probably than a local police. Local police um, just, you know, they, they may be a policy, but there's, if you're an informant, <laughs> people are going to figure it out. Right. Uh, on the street, that's what other people have said, too. It's, you know, when someone starts acting fishy or they start to seem nervous or they, you know, who was it that knew about this or that? Well, these three people were there and, you know, and they're, uh, they're putting it, it, uh, putting it together. Um, what are you most hopeful about in policing today? Well, I mean, I think that we've come a, come a long way in terms of uh, understanding what makes places safe. So, in you know, field sociology and my my work in social psychology, we've you know, there there's a way of thinking about making places safer, that and uh, drug free and healthier that really has uh, less to do about law enforcement and catching bad guys, but, um, you know, that could work to make places safer. What, what's happened in policing in uh, the modern era, particularly uh, around the drug war and a philosophy called broken windows uh, policing, is that the uh, profession policing became the profession of law enforcement. And uh, what, what used to be uh, the measure of success in policing was the absence of crime. It's, be, it's become more the number of bodies that you bring in. What makes the police successful and, you know, to get, to get status in the organization and to either get promoted or moved into special units or something like that, is uh, you know is is he a good law enforcer? Is he a, does he make lots of lockups? Does he get guns off the street? Does he get drugs off the streets? And so th- this is this is what the police are chasing. That, that sort of uh, that's the right thing to do. You just try we to get more arrests as opposed begin, to. Can begin talking about how do we change the profession of policing? Real reform, not just reform, new techniques and new strategies for making arrests. But how do we change it so we're not focused on police uh, outputs like arrests and, and seizures of pro- uh, guns and stuff, but real community outcomes? Presently in policing, community outcomes are not assessed in any way. There's no responsibility for a place, whether or not place, it's safer, there's more trust, there's less drug use. It's 
it's really only about how many arrests are being made and how many bad guys are being taken off the street. So you kind of lost sight of why we want to take this about reform. It's to give it, maybe giving it a nudge, a push toward this uh, other way of thinking about policing. And I know LEAP, the LEAP organization is one of those forces for change, real transformation, not not just, uh, again, there's, there's models of police reform that include uh, um, you know, data-driven models and, and uh, predictive policing and all, all that kind of thing. But these are just new ways of, uh, new automated ways of making more lockups. Hmm. You really need to shift back to what does it look like to have safer communities as opposed to what does it look like to just have a lot of arrests? Right. Um, Mm-hmm. And the police are really in a position, and, and, and I think a lot of uh, what some police leaders say when you say something like that is, well, that's not what law enforcement does. Well, law, the, the concept of law enforcement being the same thing as police, you know, when, when people come into my, you know, w, WVU now and they say, I want a career in law enforcement, they don't say, I want a career in policing. They, they go into it with the mindset, I'm, I want to go in and I want to catch, catch bad guys, I want to catch criminals and lock them up. But when you look closer at it, you, you realize that criminals, the people who commit crimes, are, they're just people, and they're, they're acting within the context that they're in. And this is not really letting people off the hook, but it's, also, but it's acknowledging that really context matters. And in and, and places where there's violence and uh, drug abuse and that sort of thing, that tends to, to bring on more violence and more drug abuse. That can be fixed. Wow. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Uh, if, if, I, if I said anything more, it would just be about this, the, the, the hope of uh, a changing police uh, practice, where the logic of uh, what an officer does is if an officer gets into the police car and goes into a community and his focus is how do I make, how do I make the connections between people and build trust trusting relationships and so that I can make this place safer rather than going out there looking for bad guys to arrest. I think that'll change the disposition of the officers uh, in ways that we hope, you know, there's a tendency to talk about there's just the, um, the, the, the police disposition is uh, um, that the, the, uh, the, the police are uh, oriented toward um, this particular catching bad guys because it's a personality problem or there's a bad apple in the barrel or something like that. But the reality of it is that the game of law enforcement, the game that they're playing, is what produces the disposition and the mindset. And I think that that can be changed by uh, changing the, the game, changing what they're doing to building strong, safe places. And that, that affects drugs, that affects uh, crime and violence. It affects... Uh, clearance rates of crimes and that sort of thing. And clearance rates, um, you've mentioned that several times, clearance rates meaning an arrest was made uh, for a Right. I mean, one thing I want to say about that, the the police say that uh, we're making lots of arrests and therefore we're making places safer. But if you look at the clearance rates, when crimes actually happen, like burglaries and robberies and those types of things, they're very rarely solved. So they, the police are busy making arrests, but they're making arrests for, for drugs and they're making arrests for, you know, disorderly conduct. And this is the, uh, the sort of the broken windows trend in policing where if we can arrest people for small crimes, we'll prevent the big stuff. But 
but arresting people for small crimes has actually broken trust and 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 created more violence in many neighborhoods. And then the bigger crimes are not getting solved at the rate that maybe they could if we had more of our right. There's no. Resources. I think it's a measure. Of, clearance rates are a measure of it's community trust. That if uh, it it, only, it it takes a, a an engaged community who's watching out for each other to be able to uh, help clear crimes like that. The police can't do it just purely uh, by detective work. There's a, there's a tendency to want, you know, uh, DNA databases and that kind of stuff and fingerprint databases that we can, you know, we can come in and process the scene and, and run it through the computer and find out who did it. But that's that's not the case. And and uh, basically what you need people is to say, hey, this is this is who I saw. He, he was uh, skipping school and I, I saw him taking a TV or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you need and that then, trust uh, that maybe even this confidential right informant now, is Because of the law enforcement tactics, that there's most places, many places, there's not that level of trust that clearance rates are going to um, improve until the, the police do something different. Dr. Nolan, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really helpful. Sure, anytime. If you'd like to connect Thank you for with, having me. Absolutely. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Nolan, you can email him at uh, jim.nolan at mail.wvu.edu. Thanks for joining us as we try to save lives and help improve lives by ending our criminal approach to drugs for good. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.